1: Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call and I have the house to myself, so of course I'm with you. Remember to check out the website howgooditis.com and the Twitter and the Instagram and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over there at facebook.com slash pod. I've got a quick trivia question for ye today, but don't let that fool you into thinking it's going to be easy. Here we go. Only two white solo male performers have hit the top five on the Billboard Hot 100 as artists in the Motown stable. Name them. You want a hint? Okay. One of them was in 1970 and was on the Rare Earth label, and the other was in 1987, but he did appear on the Motown label. Did that help? Nah. Gee, that's a shame. However, I will have the answer to this question near the end of the show. Anyway, if Proud Mary is one of those songs that feels like about a dozen different versions came out all at once, well, you're not quite wrong. In a very short period of time, three different versions of the song were released, and all of them charted, and then another one came out a little bit later on. So, if you're searching back through your memories and you're thinking... Whoa, there was a whole lot of Proud Mary going on then. Well, you'd be correct. And we'll talk a little bit about all of them. But first, let's turn back the clock a bit. John Fogerty, the heart of Creedence Clearwater Revival, was drafted in 1966. And so, to avoid being conscripted somewhere... He and drummer uh, Doug Clifford, who had also received his draft notice, instead joined the reserves. Clifford went into the Coast Guard Reserve, while Fogarty joined the Army Reserve, serving at various U.S. bases, including Fort Bragg, Fort Knox, and Fort Lee, the one in Virginia, not New Jersey. Now, Creedence was already a band, although they were still known as the Gollywogs, so Fogarty says that he was mostly known as that hippie with a record on the radio. In the book, Bad Moon Rising, which is an unofficial history of the band, Fogarty is quoted as saying that when he got his discharge notice in 1967, and I quote, I was so happy I ran out into my little patch of lawn and turned cartwheels. Then I went into my house, picked up my guitar, and started strumming. Unquote. In short, Fogarty says that a lot of the song came out of him immediately. Now, according to the liner notes from the 2008 reissue of the Bayou Country album, music critic Joel Selvin reported that Fogarty already had some of the riffs down for several of the songs while he was in the reserves, and there's no reason to believe that that's not the case here. However, Fogarty sensed right away that the song was going to be a radio-friendly hit, and said he felt like Cole Porter when they were doing rehearsals. Now, Thomas Kitts, in his book about John Fogarty, notes that the narrator in the song leaves what he considers a good job despite the working conditions and follows his dream by jumping on the riverboat. And on this journey, he learns about the overall goodness of the people who live near the river. Kitts gives the river a near-biblical significance in that it gives the singer both escape and rebirth. And indeed, there's a flavor of Mark Twain in that overall feeling, with the sense of rambling along the Mississippi River and finding some sense of community among the folks he encounters. Now, musically, Fogarty himself has noted that one of the song's influences was Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. He says he wanted to open a song with a similar intro, specifically Descending by a Third. And sure enough, if you're listening to the openings to both, you'll definitely hear those parallel shifts. The only real difference is in the emphasized note. Beethoven puts it on the fourth note, dun 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 dun, whereas Fogarty puts it on the first, dun 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 dun. But otherwise, sure. Have a listen. Here's Beethoven. And here's Proud Mary. Fogarty has also suggested that he was trying to evoke male gospel harmonies, especially with that chorus line. So, the basic tracks were laid down by the band at the RCA Studios in Hollywood with John Fogarty on lead guitar, his brother Tom on rhythm guitar, Stu Cook playing bass, and of course Doug Clifford on the drums. And then Fogarty did some overdubs and the vocals later on, which might have caused a little friction in the band because he basically took out the other members' harmonies to replace them with his own. Now, while there's a source that says the song was released just before Christmas of 1968, most sources agree that Proud Mary came out in January of 1969, but either way, it became a pretty big hit, making it to the number two slot on the Billboard Hot 100. It was the first of five non-consecutive singles to reach that point, but never quite cracked the top slot. However, Proud Mary has the distinction of being held out of the number one position by two different songs. First, it was blocked out by Everyday People, by Sly and the Family Stone, and then by Tommy Rose Dizzy jumping over it and taking the number one, while Creedence got stuck at number two. At five, Creedence Clearwater has the largest number of number two hits without ever scoring in number one. Proud Mary did make it to number one in Austria, South Africa, and Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia? Yeah. Plus, it was number eight in the UK, number five in Australia, and was a top 15 hit elsewhere in Europe. Finally, before I move on from Creedence Clearwater Revival, I should point out one extra detail. Specifically, the line about pumped a lot of pain down in New Orleans, because I'm almost positive you're making the same mistake I did. He's not saying pain as in, ouch, that hurts. He's singing pain, P-A-N-E, as in propane. The singer is pumping gas. And all of this, plus the whole swamp rock sound, plus naming the album Bayou Country, Plus, Fogarty's funky pronunciation of Tynin and Bynan, which was a conscious imitation of Howlin' Wolf, had people thinking that this California bass band was from the Deep South. All right, let's talk about the covers. Not long after Credence's version became a hit, R&B artist Solomon Burke took to the studios at Muscle Shoals, with which his new label, Bell Records, didn't appreciate at all since the song was already a hit and what's more, it was still on the charts. Burke's explanation to them was that it was a pretty big record, but it was also a white record, whereas his cover could get the airplay on the R&B stations and on the charts. And indeed, with very little promotion, Burke's version went to number 15 on the R&B charts and number 45 on the pop charts. For his part, John Fogerty was impressed by Burke's rendition, thinking that the spoken intro really took the song to a different level.
0: A lot of you folks would like
1: to know what the old Proud Mary is all about. Well, I'd like to tell you about her. She's nothing but a big old boat. You see, my forefathers used to ride the bottoms of her as stokers, cooks, and waiters. And I made a vow that when I grew up, I'd take a ride on the old Proud Mary. And if you'd let me, I'd like to sing about it. Looking for
0: a job in the city, working for.
1: Now, it was also Burke who suggested to uh, Ike Turner that he and Tina should get a hold of the song, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because you got to hear something else first. Now, this next track was also recorded in 1969 by a group called the Checkmates Limited featuring Sonny Charles. In November of 1969, this record made it to number 69 on the Billboard Hot 100 and to number 42 in France. So there you go, 1969, three different versions of the song. All charting. But I want you to listen to the musical arrangement on this one because I think you'll see how it becomes important. hear all that okay let's jump back just a little bit remember how i said solomon burke told ike turner that he should get on this record well ike wasn't so hot on the original version but he was pretty intrigued by this version by the checkmates with the horns and the energy that it put forth so he and soko richardson did some major rearranging with the slow soulful beginning and then the horn dominated funk rock party with the gospel-like call and response vocals And Tina Turner performed this a few times on TV during 1970, and then they released the single in January of 1971. This version went to number four on the Billboard Hot 100, and it went top 20 in a few European countries plus Canada. Tina Turner also did a solo version in the mid-1990s, which wound up on her uh, 2004 Greatest Hits album titled All The Best. And as it happened in 2010, a contestant on the UK show, The X Factor, performed the song, causing Tina's solo version to enter the UK singles chart at number 62, but it dropped to 121 the following week. Though it also made it to number 40 on the Scottish singles chart. Let's see what else. Oh yeah. Elvis Presley started performing the song in his concert in 1970. And it made it on his live albums on stage that same year and the Madison Square Garden concert album in 1972. would be so remiss if I didn't mention this version. This is actor Leonard Nimoy from his 1970 album, The New World of Leonard Nimoy. And while it's not really terrible okay, I might be behaving generously because I'm a Star Trek fan, I think it gets most of its grief because of this. Yeah, that's Nimoy imitating John Fogarty imitating Howlin' Wolf. And the weird thing is, he doesn't do it throughout the record. He, only, he, he at least not the first time he sings the chorus. Had enough yet? Yeah, okay. Now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you to identify the two solo white male artists who recorded songs for Motown and made it to the top five on the Billboard Hot 100 chart with those songs. Well, the first one was R. Dean Taylor, whose name you might not recognize, but I can practically guarantee you know the song. And let me apologize in advance, because I hate it with myself when this happens, but if you're listening in your car... No, there isn't a police cruiser or ambulance nearby. Indiana Wants Me was a number uh, two hit for R. Dean Taylor in 1970, recording on Motown's Rare Earth label, which uh, Motown spun off specifically for white rock artists. And for the curious, Rare Earth the label was named after Rare Earth the band, not the other way around. For what it's worth, Indiana Wants Me made it to number one on the cash box chart in the U.S., and it was also number two in Canada, Ireland, and the U.K., Hit-wise, Taylor didn't do much else in the U.S., although he did have a couple of modest hits in the U.K. and Canada, where he is a citizen and he qualifies for the Canadian content requirements they have there. As far as the other artists? Well, to be honest, this one is a little bit more forgettable to modern-day listeners, unless you're a deep oldies fan. But in 1987, an up-and-coming actor by the name of Bruce Willis hadn't yet hit it big with the Die Hard franchise, but he was very popular as one of the stars of the TV show Moonlighting along with his co-star Sybil Shepard. And one of his character's schticks was singing old R&B songs to himself or lacing his dialogue with song lyrics. So it kind of made sense when he released the album The Return of Bruno, which was in fact a companion to a kind of rockumentary parody. Think along the lines of a cross between Forrest Gump and Spinal Tap, a, the same name, The Return of Bruno, which aired on HBO and featured Willis as a Bruno Radolini, who had an influence on a number of famous musicians who appeared as themselves in the film. And so the songs on the album are all covers of old R&B tunes, including Respect Yourself. That's the Pointer Sisters singing Back who had the original hit version. This recording made it to number five on the Billboard Hot 100 and number two in the UK. The album also yielded a cover of Under the Boardwalk, which did quite well in the UK, but it didn't even crack the top 40 in the United States. And that's a full lid on yet another edition of How Good It Is. If you are enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone. Maybe even leave a rating somewhere. That would be a beautiful thing. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at HowGoodItIs. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or You can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show, and next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we say domo arigato to Mr. Robatu. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.